Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. We are continuing with our World Cup marathon. And today, Dominic, is Morocco, or Mauritania, as I prefer to think of it. <laughs> you don't, you don't <laughs> call Morocco Mauritania, do you? Well, do when, you? Ta- when, when talking to Romans. Okay, fi- fair enough. So, Morocco. Tom, Tom, how up with Moroccan history are you? Sort of post-Roman Moroccan history. Uh, I, well, I, I, obviously, it's from Morocco that um, the Moors invade Spain. Yep. So I know about that. Yeah. Uh, and I know about the, the way in which um, once the Reconquista in Spain has been pushed back, Spanish and Portuguese forces are, are endlessly dipping their toes into uh, Moroccan affairs. They are and indeed. then the, the French uh, pile in, don't they? They do. Uh, and there's all kinds of, uh, of shenanigans in Tangier with various louche behaviour from there is louche behavior. early 20th Kenneth century. Williams. Kenneth Williams used to go to Morocco on holiday yeah. with Joe Wharton. Jean Genet? Uh, yeah, we will, not be, crowd. we will not be discussing any of that that more insalubrious end of the, uh, of the Moroccan history spectrum, um, I'm happy to say. So what have you, what have you chosen? So I have chosen a, an enormously important and interesting war that I think very few people know anything about, certainly in the English-speaking world, and it's called the Rif War. Uh, and it took place, Tom, the sort of high point of the Rift War was the 1920s, but it had kind of been bubbling away since the beginning of the 20th century. It is an amazing story. And I know I've got a sort of dog in the fight here, but it's got Franco is in it. Marshall Pater is in it. There are American uh, airmen launching bombing raids on civilians. There are chemical weapons. There are Americans. There are chemical weapons. There are sort of, Islamic tribesmen. There's all kinds of stuff going on in this incredibly sort of Baroque story that most people know nothing at all about. So, so, so from what you're saying, yeah, it, it, it sounds like a dummy run for quite a lot of the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. It absolutely is. It's both Americans launching chemical attacks and air raids and things from well, Vietnam. Uh, hints of the yeah. Algerian war. Yes, definitely. Colonial wars. So, in some ways, it's that you could say it's the last. It's the last Victorian colonial war, but it's also the ancestor of the Spanish Civil War. There are hints of the Second World War and of Vietnam, as you say, and of the war in Afghanistan and twenty-first century wars. So, there's loads going on. So, Morocco, Morocco, as I'm sure you know, Tom, is the only North African country that was not part of the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. um, which I actually didn't know until about an hour ago. So Morocco had a very has had and has a very uh, long-established dynasty of kind of sultans and kings. So that's the Alawi dynasty that was established in the 1630s. Would you believe? However, basically, what happened in the course of the 19th century is that Morocco was sort of nibbled away. I mean, you were saying earlier on about the Spanish and the Portuguese. Morocco had always kind of really been prey to the sort of predators from across the um, across the straits. And by the end of the 19th century, the French are established there. They have a protectorate. And also the Spanish um, have, they have two sort of enclaves in Ceuta and Melilla, which they still have to this day on the coast 
on the kind of Mediterranean coast um, of Morocco facing Spain. But now, between those two enclaves, Tom, of Ceuta and Melilla, there's a, a great range of mountains called the Rif. And as you will no doubt know, the people who live in those mountains, and indeed in Morocco generally, although many of them do speak Arabic, they are not Arabs. They are, of course, uh, Berbers. They are Berbers. Yeah, they're Berbers. Exactly. So presumably they have been Berbers. I mean, they must have been Berbers forever. Yes. They've always been Berbers, haven't they? They've always been Berbers. Or Numidians. In the days of the Roman Empire. So what would you call them? Numidians. Maybe Numidians. You could range of names. Mauritanians. Lots of of potential names. So they're Berbers. And um, so they're in these sort of very inaccessible mountains called the the Rif Mountains. And very few Europeans at, at this point, at the end of the 19th century, had ever been into the into these mountains. That's very odd, isn't it, considering how close they are to Europe? Well, uh, they're very inaccessible. Um, they're sort of very, f- they're forested. The, the, the people, the tribes are extremely inhospitable. So um, a, a correspondent for the Times who writes about the Rift War, so we'll come to the war in due course, he says, he tells his readers, he says, very few Europeans have ever been. Um, the Berbers are as inhospitable to the Arab as they are to the foreigner. Basically, if you pitch up in their country, they will kill you. That's basically the, <laughs> the um, famous Berber hospitality. The, fa- <laughs> the famous <laughs> hospitality of the Berbers, exactly. So it's extraordinarily beautiful. So an American correspondent called Vincent Sheehan, who covered the war for the New York Times, obviously a much-loved newspaper in these in these quarters, Thomas, <laughs> yes. uh, rest is history listeners will know. He said, he said it reminded him of Colorado. Well, the kind no of the red soil and that well colorado is beautiful yeah colorado is a famously beautiful state yeah it's got dinosaur so, fossils as well there you go i don't know if they have dinosaur fossils in morocco but they do do they yeah well i've never been to morocco so this in researching this i have developed a, a passionate desire to go into the and sample this berber hospitality for myself <laughs> <laughs> so anyway now the spanish have their eyes at the turn of the 20th century on these mountains. The Spanish, of course, had an empire, but have largely lost it. So when King Alfonso XIII became king of Spain in 1886, they had Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, and so on. But they've lost all of those, um, largely thanks to the Spanish-American War at the end of the 1890s. So the Spanish are sort of feeling very bruised. And King Alfonso and the people around him um, form what's called the Africanist lobby. So they basically say, all the other European powers have now got these massive empires. And we, the Spanish, the, the great, the prototypical empire builders, we've kind of been shut out. And, and our destiny lies in North Africa. So the Italians are actually saying the same thing, aren't they, about Abyssinia, mm-hmm. Ethiopia, at the same time. And also the Catholic Church in Spain is also very much, you know, it's in battle by anti-clerical forces, and the Catholic Church is saying, we need a new crusade. So, the so they are catching it in those terms, are they? Absolutely. The so they see it as a continuation not, of the Reconquista. It's not finished. Because Morocco had originally been Christian. Right. We need to carry it across the, across the seas yeah. and take back Morocco, effectively. So the Spanish have their eyes very much on these mountains in the in the north of morocco are there any natural resources there how do you tell you have you have you seen my notes <laughs> no have you well, know when when europeans are are after remote mountainous regions so there's he? often there's often an ulterior 
This is Ontario mate. It's, it's almost just... as if you've been swatting up secretly on your own uh, <laughs> in order to outflank me in my own choice of subject. So yes, in the Rift Mountains, there is loads of iron. There is loads of high-grade iron, and they can, with open pit mining techniques, they can excavate it. And the so Spanish it's very beautiful, very beautiful, but it won't be if the Spanish conquer it. Well, I gave the comparison with Colorado. Yeah. Colorado was also a huge mining place. So the Spanish crown, they, they, they grant mining concessions to kind of rich businessmen who are close to the royal family. And they're very keen to start sort of pushing this. However, it almost from the outset goes wrong. So 1909, Spanish workers who are building a big bridge, which is going to bring a railway bridge, which is going to, open up access from the sea to these iron mines, they're attacked by local Berbers. And the Spanish mobilize their army, they raise 40,000 troops, and they send them into Morocco. So that's the sort of, that's the equivalent of your origins of the Vietnam War sort of moment. From that point onwards, they are kind of implicated, and they're going to start throwing in more and more men in an attempt to def- defend these mines and railways and spread as they see it, the, I mean, literally, the gospel of yeah. the kind of, you know, Spanish Africanism. So th- th- there's a slight sense that the Spanish have been bullied by the Americans, and so now they're going to go and bu- bully the Berbers. Somebody else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think there's a, I think there's, that's a fair, that's actually a pretty yeah. fair description. Now, right from the beginning, in Spain itself, a lot of people are very, very uneasy about this, and they can see that it's going to, it's going to end in disaster, basically. So when they're in 1909, when the Spanish government starts to call up reserves, there are strikes and there are riots in places like Barcelona. In Barcelona, there's a there's a kind of a sort of localized uprising, which becomes known as the Tragic Week, where the Catalan trade unions basically say, you know, we have no business interfering in Morocco. What's all this? What's all this about? But the Spanish, nevertheless, are determined. The government is and the king are absolutely determined to do it, and they they feel, as you said, this sort of burning sense of humiliation which they feel that they have to um, redress. But also, in 1912, um, the, the French basically formally grant them a protectorate along the northern coast of Morocco. So this is partly because the British were very keen to have a buffer between Gibraltar and the French. So it's it's good for so the British are well, keen on this. That's very reasonable, isn't it? Yeah, but it's also well, I think it's obviously completely <laughs> reasonable, Tom. But it's also because they're keen that the Germans don't get in in yeah, uh, Morocco. There have, been, yeah. there have been a series of sort of um, little bust ups and crises about this, and there's this sort of anxiety in the run up to the First World War. You know, we need to iron out all anomalies. We need to every little last bit of the patchwork needs to be allocated to a different European power so they're not going to squabble and and fall out about it so everyone knows where they stand. So the Spanish are now very keen to kind of formalise their protectorate, and that brings them into greater problems, and that raises the spectre, as it were, of their great antagonist, who is a really, really colourful and interesting man, who is a man called Mohammed Abdel Krim. Now, again, somebody who's not really known uh, now in sort of 21st century um, sort of the English-speaking world, but a colossally interesting figure, actually, Tom, who anticipates people like, I don't know, Ho Chi Minh or or any of these kind of post-colonial or anti-colonial kind of freedom fighters, but also has a slight element, I suppose you could say, of the Mahdi about him for people mm-hmm. who remember our podcasts about General Gordon. So Abdel Krim 
he comes from the Rift Mountains. Uh, but his father, unusually, it can read and write. He's very educated, sort of intelligent. Read and write Arabic. Arabic. And he had been officially named by the Sultan as a, as a, as a, I don't know how to say this, Tom. You'll have to explain that. Is it a Qadi, a Qadi, an Islamic judge? Yeah. Is it a Qadi? Yeah. You sure? Yeah. You're not bluffing. Qadi. Qadi. So his, and, and this guy, he had been named as an Islamic judge as a Qadi. By the, by the <laughs> very good. That was beautiful, uh, beautiful yeah. Arabic pronunciation. So, Abdul Karim Senior is a sort of a man of letters and a man of learning in his community, but he's also quite close to the Spanish. So, the Spanish have designated him what they call a moro amigo, a friendly more. Um, so, they kind of rely on him as a local bigwig that they can sort of do deals with. Thanks to his father's patronage, Mohammed Abdel Karim. He goes off to the madrasa, to the university in Fez, uh, where he studies Islamic law and he studies classical Arabic. But he also has these links to the Spanish. So because of that, his father was able to get him a job teaching at a primary school in Melilla in the Spanish enclave. So he's got links to the Spanish and he obviously, you know, presumably can speak a little bit of Spanish and has contacts with the Spanish authorities and so on. They hire him to write articles in Arabic for a newspaper in the, um, in the enclave in Melilla. And there he pours out all these articles saying, European civilization is great. The Spanish are our friends. They are bringing technology and sort of civilization that will elevate the people of Morocco and all this kind of business. And he en- indeed ends up working very closely with a, an organization called the Native Affairs Office. So he's working with the army, he's working with the kind of civil bureaucracy, he's absolutely implicated. And in fact, Mohammed Abdul Krim, so this is Abdul Krim Jr., he is, he is designated eventually in, I think, 1913, the chief Islamic judge in Melilla. So he's basically the person that the Spanish have identified as a really promising collaborator in their colonial enterprise. And then, it's really hard to sort of work out exactly what it is, but something goes wrong. And this is actually, what's so interesting about this is that this is not really unusual. Quite often, people who end up becoming anti-colonial freedom fighters have originally been collaborators who have since fallen out with their allies and who feel let down and cheated. Mm-hmm. But because of their previous collaboration, they have the the contacts, the articulacy, yeah. the kind of resources, if you like, that will enable them to become the standard bearers of the rebellion. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happens with Abdel Krim. He and his father, it seems, had got close to the Germans. And the Germans were kind of... Now, Spain was very neutral in World War One, And I think what ha- what clearly had happened is that they had some kind of links with the Germans. The Spanish authorities found out about it and punished them much more severely than they were expecting. So they thought they were bending the rules, but the Spanish thought they had kind of broken them. So the Spanish actually jail Abdel Krim very briefly. This is the junior. The junior. And although he then gets his judgeship back after he comes out of prison, he's been completely humiliated in the eyes of kind of his community and stuff. And the Spanish are sort of, you know, the Spanish, I think, don't realize how much they have offended him and humiliated him. So... Well, that's quite odd, isn't it? Because the Spanish are all about honour as well. 
Yes, but I don't think, I think as you'll find in this podcast, <laughs> the Spanish handle the affairs of Morocco in an unbelievably incompetent and insensitive way. Um, and that's clearly what they did with the Abdel Krim family. I think what was also happening was that clearly as they were expanding the mines into the mountains and things, they were putting his father and the rest of the family in a kind of position where they were increasingly going to have to choose between continuing to back the Spanish and, you know, if they did that, they would alienate a lot of their local community or they would have to side with their local community and therefore lose the Spanish. And if, uh, probably they choose, they choose the only option that's really open to them, which is they have to go with the people who live around them, i.e. the local community. So what is very clear is that by about 1920, the Abdel Krim family, who are a big family in these mountains, so a lot of people kind of owe them a kind of tribal loyalty, they have severed their connections with the Spanish authorities. And Mohammed Abdel Krim sort of steps forward as the sort of standard bearer of resistance. He's looking for revenge after what he sees as his unfair treatment, but he's also, you know, he wants to protect the sort of the, the villages of the mountains against what he sees as the, the cruel and sensitive intrusions of Spanish modernity. Is, is there an element of defending Islam as well? Because that's a, a theme, isn't it, of the, the, the merging of nationalist and Islamic exactly. yes. insurgency. I think that's a, that's a really, really um, astute observation that I mean, that Reconquista element, that kind of Catholic crusade element, that's clearly not going to go down well um, with lots of people in Morocco. But the Berber tribes had famously been very disputatious and had been sort of renowned for their feuds among one another. And really the only way in a pre-nationalist age, an age when a lot of people can't read and write, so they're not susceptible to the kind of, what you might say, the classic kind of forms of nationalism, Islam is the obvious glue. I mean, you see that everywhere in the 20th yeah. century, don't you, in this yeah, you anti-colonial world. And so, and as you say, I mean, there's, there's discussions of the Mahdi, for instance. Yeah. Are, are, are very interested in that question. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that's what makes Abdel Krim such an interesting figure, because in some ways he looks back to the Mahdi, but in other ways he obviously looks further forward, mm. you know, to, to later 20th and 21st century kind of Islamic insurgencies because he's using, he starts to use, I think increasingly Islam as a, as, as the glue to bind together what would otherwise be a kind of feuding, yeah. very sort of quarrelsome Berber confederation. So he recruits Berber riflemen and they basically, they're very good riflemen. You know, that sort of stereotype of the sort of the tribesman who can shoot a, I don't know, what do they shoot him or what would you shoot him? Uh, the tip of Sharut. A tip of yeah, the tip of a colonel's cheroot, yes. exactly from a distance of ten miles or yes. whatever. Exactly. I think this is. I mean, this is a top historical analysis, <laughs> but I think that's exactly what the Berbers are able to do. Now, by contrast, the Spanish army in in uh, North Africa, and I should apologise at this point to any Spanish. I don't think we really have any Spanish listeners, do we? Do we have Spanish yeah, I think listeners? We did. Yeah. Well. Some. They they should probably avert their. Can you avert your ears? They should close their ears. Block their ears, because um, their army is an absolute shambles. It's a it's a terrible shambles. So their army is is incompetent. There are sort of tens of thousands of them, but they're incredibly corruptly led. Most of them, they too are illiterate. Actually, they're illiterate conscripts. They're from the very poorest part of Spanish society. They're given rifles that don't work or rifles that are sort of 50 years old. They are given 
they're, they're incredibly badly treated by their officers. So they sort of are given coffee and beans to, to sort of live on. And in fact, they end up, a lot of them end up actually bartering their rifles in Berber villages in exchange for fresh vegetables, which obviously mm-hmm. isn't, isn't ideal. Great, is it? Um, they don't have toilets in their barracks. It's all sort of, it's just all inept and sort of shambolic. They're also accompanied by this giant, I don't really know how to put it in a, in a political well, mind boggling caterpillar. <laughs> yeah. Bal- Balloon. No, it's a giant horde of prostitutes, Tom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I so, think that reflects very well on my imagination that that wasn't what I. Yeah. I suppose people <laughs> would now object to the word horde and prostitutes. So they'd say, I don't know, sex workers. Um, yeah. Anyway, there's a, you, there's a load of them. That's a sort of small, there's a small army of them. Yeah. Of court, of, the, of top Spanish courtesans who are, who accompany the army through the mountains. So venereal disease in the army is rampant. So basically one in every two men or whatever is crippled by venereal disease. A proud record. <laughs> so the, the, the officers are, are universally agreed by foreign war correspondents to be atrocious. Uh, as one American, Do they have anything going for them? Well, one American journalist said of the Spanish officers, he, spent, he said they spent their time gambling and whoring and molesting the native Moorish women. So okay. that doesn't suggest, no. you know, that's not a proud record. And their, their chief officer is a man called um, General Manuel Fernandez Silvestre, and he's the commander in Ceuta and Melilla in the two enclaves. Now, he is a veteran of the Spanish-American War in Cuba, so he knows the sting of humiliation, and he's determined to put it right. I mean, you'll be pleased to hear, Tom, because you're looking for positives, he is a tremendous womanizer. So, <laughs> well, yes. I would expect nothing less. Uh, I, I, re- I read in a biography of him online that he, quote, fathered scores of illegitimate children by the various women he seduced. Right. So he's very fecund. Right. I think it's fair to say. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he's a very flamboyant figure, sort of mustaches and all this kind of thing. But he has distinctly, I don't know, how would I put this? He, he has non sort of guardian friendly approach to interactions with the locals. So the minister of war says to him at one point, have you got all the equipment? You know, do you have everything you need? Do you need anything else? And he says, yeah, I do. The only way to succeed in Morocco, he says, is to cut off the heads of all the Moors. So, <laughs> so that's a very traditional approach. Yeah, it's it? not hearts and minds. No, it's no. not hearts and minds. So he's he's very much harking back, basically, to the the tenth century. There, definitely, he is. And in fact, at some stage, Abdel Krim, who is holed up in the mountains, sends him a message and says, "Don't come out of your enclaves into the mount- with your army into the mountains. Don't cross this particular river. If you do, you will die." And General Fernandez Silvestre says to the, the Spanish press, say, well, what do you think of this? And he says, um, this man, Abdel Krim, is crazy. I am not going to take seriously the threats of a little Berber judge whom I had at my mercy a short time ago. His insolence merits a new punishment. Now, you can probably guess at this stage where the story of these two men is heading. <laughs> I can. This, this, <laughs> this is not going to, in fact, end. I'll tell you now as a massive spoiler alert. General Fernandez Silvestre is not going to cut off the head of Abdel Krim. Quite the reverse. Right. So he, so he sends out his army into the mountains. I shouldn't laugh at it. It's a terrible story. He sends his army into the mountains. They split up and they start going to all these little forts and these things called block hours, which are these sort of mini forts that they've established in the mountains. 
quite quickly, they all get cut off from each other. Their communications are terrible. They start to send relief expeditions to some of these forts, but they're all absolutely they're destroyed by the sharpshooting birds. Yes, the shrews are pinging all over the, <laughs> yeah, the rift exactly. mountains. <laughs> and the, um, the men who are in the forts are left, they, they're left, they've got no supplies, so they drink, they, first of all, ink, and then they're drinking their own urine. Right. Which is, you know, that's, that's always a bad sign. Never a good position to be in. General Fernando Silvestro, after a, a, a deal of sort of marching about, he ends up in a fort in a place called Annual. So it's, it's literally spelled like the word annual. And um, at this stage, he, he's conscious that something has gone wrong. They've got cut off from the coast. The, the mountains are kind of crawling with Berbers. Uh, he's lost communication with some of these other forts. This is all a bit of a disaster. So he, he's walking around on the sort of parapet of this fort, and he can see movement out in the hills. He's chewing his moustache the whole time, and supposedly is just sort of muttering gibberish to himself. So his officers don't really know what to do. So this is very apocalypse now, then, isn't it? It's very I mean, apocalypse it's, yeah. now. And then in July 1921, General um, Fernando Silvestre decides, okay, I've had enough. We're going to march out of this fort, and we're just going to make a break for it and head to the coast. And he says to his men, and, and the colossal legion of prostitutes that are with <laughs> them, that have, that have come with them ludicrously, he says, we're out, you know, we're on our way, off you go throw open the gates of the fort and, and off you go. So they, they march out and they basically march out. And what happens is that the Rift tribesmen just shoot them all like from the hills as though they're in people describe it. And they say, it's like this shooting gallery. People are just sort of trudging along being shot down, including the, including the prostitutes, including the prostitutes. So they're all shot down. I think 13,000. So people. quite, quite like the first Afghan war, that kind of, it's absolutely situation. Like it's an, uh, it, but when but the British with, try to leave Kabul and, and get wiped out. But with, I think, an extra, a sort of a degree of Baroque flamboyance. A magical realist or, spin. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because they all the turn into butterflies or. Because the general, you see, Tom, he has not marched out. This is not. the thing. They've marched out, but he's there on the parapet. And he, cl- and, and the last sighting of him. People say they stood, he was standing there on the parapet, chewing his moustache and shouting at his men down below, run, run, the bogeyman is coming. Right. Okay. <laughs> Which is not a detail <laughs> no, that you would expect. And he stands there shouting that while they're all being shot down. They're all killed. And then he goes inside and back down into his tent, and shoots himself in the head. And that's the end of General Fernandez Silvestre. So the bogeyman has come. The bogeyman has come. Would, would that be a good moment to take a break? It would. I think it's fair to say for the Spanish, this has not been a good 20 minutes, Tom. Okay, well, uh, let's see if it improves for the Spanish uh, after the break. I, I have no idea what's going to happen, Dominic. I don't know what's going to happen. Although you have mentioned that, that chemicals appear. So yes, that's so not. I'm suspecting that things are going to get worse in all kinds of ways. We will see you in a few minutes. Bye-bye. Hello, welcome back to our World Cup special on Morocco. We are looking at the Rift Wars. And Dominic, before the break, you were making this sound increasingly like a, a, a particularly bloody magical realist novel. The Spanish general has just shot himself. The bogeyman has come. Yeah. Are more terrible things in the offing. They are, yes. So this is the greatest defeat. Spain has not had a great run in recent years, it's fair to say. Obviously, the d- defeat in Cuba, the loss of the Philippines and so on. 
So the Spanish are feeling sore anyway, but this is undoubtedly the most humiliating defeat in Spanish history. So they've lost 13,000 men, and indeed that sort of small battalion of, of ladies of the night have also been lost. There is a tremendous amount of sort of soul-searching and, and, and sort of angst-ridden breast-beating in Spanish politics. Now, the king, Alfonso XIII, who was a huge sort of mover, as I said in the first half, in the sort of campaign in Morocco, he is pretty unrepentant. So he has told the news in, in, <laughs> in very Spanish monarchy fashion. He has told the news while playing golf in the south of France. And someone comes up to him and says, Your Majesty, we've lost the entire army. 13,000 men are dead. Uh, and the king says, do you know what he says, Tom? Uh, there is time to beat the Berbers yet and win the game. Something no. like that. <laughs> he says, um, I, don't, I shouldn't laugh, actually. He says, uh, chicken meat is cheap. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> wow. That's terrible. Okay, yeah. What a thing to say. So he's saying that of his own army. Yeah. I mean, anyway, chicken meat is cheap. Very, very, unlike, very unlike the, the behaviour of our own late queen. Very, very. She wouldn't say things like that, would she? She definitely would not if we lost an army in similar circumstances. So um, I don't think I don't think the the king would say that now, would he, Tom? No, he wouldn't. I don't think the king of Spain would say that now. To be fair, no. Uh, Maybe his predecessor, but uh, yes, his dad. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God for Saudi Arabia. Anyway, listen, we're we're spiraling off into abuse of the Spanish royal family. We absolutely. This is not what we're about. We haven't been true to our values there, Tom. So yes, the Spanish then start to raise a new army. There are lots more sort of strikes and there are mutinies. People don't want to go uh, in Barcelona. Crowds burn Spanish flags and in fact wave the flag of the, of the riff because, mm-hmm. you know, they, they identify with the, the Moroccans more than they do with their own monarchy. I mean, it's an absolute sort of shambles, really. All of that is the prelude to a coup in Spain. So a general, Miguel Primo de Rivera, so if you, anyone, any of our listeners know about the Spanish Civil War, they will know that the name Primo de Rivera, particularly his son, plays a big part in the lead up to the, to the Spanish Civil War. And this is the point in which General Primo de Rivera seizes power. And one reason for doing that is actually because parliamentary parties wanted to launch an investigation to what had gone wrong in the Battle of Anuel. And people were worried that they would implicate the king as well as the army high command. So the command. king is still in power despite this coup? Yes, he is still in power, Tom. So it's a little bit like the situation in Italy, where you have Mussolini becoming dictator, but the king is still there. So in Spain, Primo de Rivera is dictator, but with the acquiescence of the king. And how much power does the king have? Not much power, really. I mean, in truth, particularly once power has passed to the army. He's there as a figurehead, but he, pro- he pretty much agrees with everything the army is doing, to be completely honest with you. So at first... The new Spanish strongman, Primo de Rivera, he says, well, we need to pull back a bit. So they pull back. You know, let's stop throwing sort of men away without working out a proper strategy. So they pull back to their enclaves of Ceuta and Melilla. And that basically leaves Abdel Krim as the master of the, of the mountains, as the, as the unchallenged master of the Rif. So he sets up then something called, it's an unrecognized state called the Republic of the Rif. And they do things like they, they start building roads. He has a little bureaucracy and he institutes an Islamic legal code. So you were saying in the first half about Islam. Yeah. Islam is obviously what you go to if you are trying to nation build. 
because that's the way of bringing all the different tribes and the different clans and things together. That's all but you does have. does it work? Because the Berbers are a proud and independent people. I think it does who, work, who actually. Resent, who resent the yoke of authority. I think it does work because, it, because they have an, an external enemy against whom they can unite. In fact, they have two, France and Spain. So, you know, uh, nation building is always most successful, I would say, when you have an enemy, you know, when you have an antagonist. And so they, they, have they knuckle a, down and they, they become loyal Lower members of the Republic of the Rift. Well, I think we're, we're perhaps exaggerating that a bit because the Republic of the Rift doesn't really last that long. So it's not like these structures have time to sort of to Bend embed down. themselves. Yeah. Because the Spanish are planning the whole time to sort of get it back. They have they have various ways of doing it. So, so I said at the beginning that this would anticipate the Spanish Civil War, which it absolutely does. Because the forces on which the Spanish come to rely completely anticipate the Spanish Civil War. So the first thing is that they... They have what they start to raise basically a Moroccan army. So this is what becomes the army of Africa that Franco famously commands in the 1930s. So they're called the regulares, regular units, and they have Spanish officers, but they're kind of Moroccan infantrymen, I guess. And the other thing is they start to create their own foreign legion. You know, the French foreign legion, the Spanish have a foreign legion too and still do. And is it organized on the same format that anyone can join? And Yeah, I think pretty much. Although a lot of the people who join it actually are Spanish rather than sort of charismatic. Old Herovians who yeah, old Herovians things from Nanny. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Who've been wrongly accused of cheating at school yes. or something. <laughs> Have to win their honor back. Yeah, exactly. I don't think there's as much of that in the Spanish Foreign Legion, to be honest. So the bloke who leads... Um, the, the Spanish Foreign Legion is an interesting character. He's a guy called uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jose Milian Astray. And he is a very, he's a very entertaining man. He's, he's completely demented. You astonish me. So he had been wounded in Morocco uh, in the arm and also in the eye. So very Nelsonian. So he wears an eye patch, which of course, right. by law, the leader of the Spanish yeah. foreign legion really needs to do. Yeah. So he, and he's, and he's, um, he wears eye patch and white gloves, uh, to hide his sort of his, um, his injuries. And he's known as glorioso mutilado, the glorious mutilated one, yeah. um, which I think yeah. is again, exactly what you would, what yeah. you want. Isn't it? I mean, from, yeah, and as you can say, I mean, that you could apply that to Nelson, couldn't you? You could, although Nelson didn't. So, you know, the mot- his motto that he says, that is, is still, I think, the motto of the Spanish Foreign Legion. Viva la muerte. Oh, Long yes. live death. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's very Ride of the Rahiran, isn't it, actually, when you think about <laughs> it. So, and, and you see, to go back to the, what you were talking about in the first half, the Spanish Foreign Legion is absolutely founded on Reconquista principles. So when people are sort of inaugurated into the Legion they are in the 1920s, they are kind of steeped in a world of kind of Christian crusading. Templars, the Knights, the Knights Templar, that kind of thing. Yeah, all the imagery is we are kind of crusaders who are carrying yeah. the gospel against these sort of, these these Muslim hordes and all this kind of thing. So uh, Mian Astray is the, is the head of the um, Spanish Foreign Legion with his eye patch, and he needs a number two who does not wear an eye patch, but is a bit more sort of like a bureaucrat who will sort of be his organizer and stuff. And this man is a, a young captain, well, originally a captain, who ends up being promoted to major and so on and so forth, uh, whose name is Francisco Franco. I was wondering 
So this is where Franco enters the story. Now, Franco also has an interesting... So Franco is from Galicia in the north of Spain. He had fought, been fighting in Morocco for years, as had Mia Astray. And uh, Franco, with his sort of Moroccan troops, had been um, attacked and shot in the hills near Ceuta. And there, uh, he'd been hit by a bullet in the abdomen. And his Moroccan troops thought he was going to die but he didn't. And so they said he was, he must be blessed. He must be protected by God. And that sort of sense of Franco as this kind of, you know, he's the chosen one. I mean, this is obviously going to be part of Franco's personal mythology because Franco is, I think it's fair to say an absolutely terrible man mm-hmm. and a, not in any way a sort of, um, a friend of the rest is history. But this sort of idea of him being chosen by God as a crusader. All of that stuff that plays an enormous part in the ideology of the nationalists, um, and that must Spanish help win hearts and minds in Morocco. What that he's been chosen by God, yeah, and that he's leading a band of crusaders. They must love that well, in the Republic of the Rif. <laughs> well, his no, I'm sure they don't love it at all. But his, but the sort of the, his troops definitely think that he has something, a special quality. You know, they. Well, actually, do they, or is that how much is that Franco myth making? I don't know enough of the details of this to know how much this is a product of Franco's later propaganda. But it'd be interesting if listeners do know if they can um, tell us. So the Spanish have got new troops. They also have new weapons. And I mentioned this um, at the beginning that there were going to be chemical weapons. So obviously people have used chemical weapons in World War One, but they have been outlawed. So they're outlawed in 1925 in the Geneva Protocol. But the Spanish are completely shameless. So they, even though they signed the Geneva Protocol, they have every intention of using them. Their war minister says, until now I have been obstinately resistant to the use of suffocating gases against indigenous peoples. But after what they have done, and after their treacherous and deceptive conduct, I will use them with true joy. Lovely thing to say. Lovely, lovely, lovely chap. So they use phosgene, diphosgene, nitrochloroform, mustard gas. And are they dropping this from planes? I think most of it's from shells, rather than like in, um, in World War I. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you know, Tom, science is not really my strong point. <laughs> and <laughs> and I'm, I would never claim to be an expert on munitions. But, uh, but, but basically they're applying the lessons of the First World War exactly. to, to the colonial the colonial dimension. They're getting help from French intelligence. So French intelligence helps them to, to, to get the sort of weapons systems and German companies. So basically it's a European effort. So is this because the, the humiliation of the Spanish by the, uh, by the Republic of the Rif is seen as a humiliation, not just for Spain, but for you, for European empires generally? Yeah, I think that's right. I think the French have their protectorate in Morocco. The French are very alarmed by all this sort of the Spanish shambles. Um, and crucially, I think the big, the big turning point, actually, I think, and Abdel Krim's big mistake is that he sends his troops into, across the border into the French bit. So the French are much more organized than the Spanish. Um, he has been getting supplies and things from across the border anyway, from the cities, you know, in the, in the French protectorate. The French are sort of beginning to, to stamp on that a little bit and to shut it down. And at that point, he sends some of his sort of, um, his raiding parties in to attack the French. They actually 
overcome over sort of they storm some French forts and things. They actually kill about or, or wound about six thousand French soldiers. And this is to him, I suppose he thinks he has no choice. But once she's poked the French, you know, they're not going to take that lightly. So once the French are involved, he really is up against it. And the French they bring in uh, their top man, actually, to... Marshal Pétain, is it? They bring in Marshal Pétain. So Pétain, at that point, is not the sort of the the distinctly tarnished World War II figure. He is the World War I hero of Verdun. He is the absolute, you know, saintly, heroic crusader of France who had, who had seen off the Germans in the French imagination. So they bring in um, Pétain. The French and the Spanish meet in the summer of 1925, and they say, okay... We, you know, let's crush this guy once and for all. So you've got Peyton, you've got Franco, you've got the, the, the glorious, glorioso mutilado. You've got, they're all involved. But what you also have, you have two other innovations which point to World War II. So number one is you have aerial bombings. So you have, I mean, this is an extraordinary thing. A guy called Charles Sweeney, who was an American World War I pilot, he said he right he gets in touch with the French and he says I would love to raise a squadron of American volunteers to come and and fight for you, and this is a very common 1920s thing. People who I mean you could it's sort of Bulldog Drummond or it's the Black and Tans or it's the Fry Corps or, or Denuncio sorry Denuncio. or Denuncio exactly people who basically won't let the Great War go and Charles Sweeney is one of those people he misses the adventure and the excitement and you know killing people. And he says, let's come and, you know, let's come and do some air raids for you. So they, they, he does raise a squadron of several, I think a couple of dozen, um, American pilots. They have seven bombers and they, they fly off the, these bombers and they, the most famous bombing they do is of a town called Chef Chauen, which I think is now a very popular tourist destination, a kind of blue city or something in the mountains. And they, they, they bomb it. Um, one of the first aerial bombardments of a civilian town. So it's often it's often said of the First World War that it's a, a process of um, colonial wars being brought back to the the imperial metropoles. Yeah, and could you say this, that the Rift War has that relationship to the Second World War, perhaps? Oh yeah, I like that, Tom. I thought you were going to turn it round and say that this is the Great War being applied to the colonial periphery. I suppose it kind of is, but, but which it kind of is. But you're right; they are. Well, they are experimenting with techniques. Yeah. Yes. The, the, what, ha- what happens in the Rift is going to happen, say, to Guernica, and then exactly. in due course to exactly. Coventry and to Hamburg. And exactly. Dresden. What happens in the Rift is going to happen to Spain in the 1930s, and then, as you say, um, to all Europe in the 1940s. Interestingly, one thing about um, the colonial dimension, Charles Sweeney is completely open about the racial element to this. So he says... He's asked why they're volunteering to help the French and the Spanish. And he says, in our view, France, in fighting Abdel Krim, is fighting the cause of the white man's civilization. And all of us who have formed this squadron know enough of the world to appreciate what the white man's civilization means. Right. So not Christian civilization. This is a racialized. Yes, I suppose he would say there was no, I mean, of course, I'm sure Charles Sweeney would say there was no contradiction between those two things, but you're absolutely right that there are different dimensions to this. One is racial, one is the sort of the, the Christian thing. I mean, he's not going to be stirred by talk of the Reconquista, is he, I suppose? No. So that's one, the, the aerial bombing. 
I can't tell you, by the way, but some listeners were wondering how many people were killed. And the truth is, I don't know, because as, as so little is written about this. Um, it's so little known. I mean, I'd love for people who do know to tell us. But, and I'd but love also, to know more we about should, it. I mean, we should put our hands up and say the British are doing the same in Iraq at this time, aren't they? Well, tear gas, not... Um, but they're so doing aerial people, bombings. I mean, they're kind they of... They are doing just, aerial bombings, They're using exactly. aerial bombings to control colonial populations. So it's, yeah. it's, it's not just... Tom, this is yet more evidence of your unsoundness. <laughs> <laughs> but I, th- I think, you know, I, th- I, I, I think it's important for our occasional sallies into patriotism that we, yeah, we acknowledge the worse, so that then we can enjoy. When the good. this podcast is over, we need to urgently call a podcast strategy meeting to discuss your, um, <laughs> your unsound. Anyway, listen. The other thing I think we need to say is that um, the other big innovation. This is the first D Day. The first sort of ah. amphibious landing. Your brother would get very excited by this, yes, he, Tom. He, he loves an amphibious so landing. So the French and the Spanish, they have a big meeting and they say, we're going to do an amphibious landing. Why? Um, the, it's Just good. for the fun of it. I don't actually know why they did it. Why are they doing I think, it? I mean, they've got I these think, ports. Uh, I think because they need to, they, there's a particular point they can only get to from the sea, maybe. Okay. A place called al Husthemas Bay. And if they can do this landing at al Husthemas Bay, they don't need to trudge through the mountains. And they have, so that, Basically, on September the 8th, 1925, a landmark in military history, Tom, the French, they, there's sort of two things happen at once. One, 20,000 French troops march north out of their protectorate into the mountains. And secondly, the Spanish land 18,000 men by sea so that it's absolutely D-Day scenes. The operation has been postponed because of bad weather just like D-Day was, and then they do it. They have thousands of men in landing craft. They bring, they land artillery. They land tanks. They have air support from more than 100 planes. They have cruisers offshore kind of bombing the Berbers. They have an aircraft carrier from which they're launching all these kind of sorties. The supreme commander of the operation is the dictator himself, himself Primo de Rivera. But the commander on the ground uh, is a man who... We'll, I'll come back to right at the end. He's called Jose Sanjurjo, and he's going to be a big figure in the Spanish Civil War. But the man who leads the first wave of troops ashore at Al Josema, do you know who that is, Tom? Pablo Picasso. <laughs> <laughs> Salvador Dali. I'm brilliant. I'm, work, I'm working my way yeah. through. Yeah, yeah, uh, Spaniards. top Spaniards. Top I'm afraid Spaniards. it was. Afraid it's Franco. It's Franco again. Is uh, it? Disappointing. Right. Somebody we've really yeah. encountered. I've really let you down there. <laughs> I, I overegged it, and um, it would have been better. If it was because Be, uh, improbable, as your father. Yeah, might but say. implausible. Picasso had Picasso had a colourful life, though. So anyway, when all these landings have taken place, Abdul Krim eventually knows the game is up. There's no way that he can beat the Spanish and the French simultaneously. His home is occupied, his home village. The Spanish and the French sort of, they basically carve their way through the mountains and he knows he's doomed. So he surrenders tellingly not to the Spanish, but to the French. And they basically promise him that they will allow him and his family, they will protect, take him and his family into custody, but protect them as long as he surrenders unconditionally. And he does. The the French actually don't treat him terribly badly. So he surrenders in 1926. He's taken off to Reunion, uh, which is in the Indian Ocean. Sort of very Bonaparte. It could be worse. He could be Devil's Island or... Right. He's taken off there and he's actually, he's treated pretty well. 
he and his family lived there in a kind of gilded exile for about 20 years. So this is like years. the British removing the, uh, the king of Ashanti. Exactly. Ashanti exactly. To, uh, yeah, to the Seychelles. And he stays there for about 20 years. And then in 1947, uh, he says he wants to go to, to France for health reasons. He needs health care because he's quite an old man by this point. And the French say, fine, yeah, you can go to France. And they go off by, by ship. But um, when they get to Egypt, they stop in Egypt. And the ship is, is raided by Moroccan nationalists who um, take them off and hide them in Cairo. And this is apparently against Abdel Krim's wishes because the French kind of lined him up a nice house in the south of France. Yeah, yeah. But, but he's told, no, 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 you have to stay in Cairo. You've got to become an icon of the rebellion. But now the, the Moroccans wanted him to come back to Morocco, but he refused. He said he would never go back to Morocco while there were still French and Spanish enclaves in Morocco. And uh, he never did. So he died in Cairo in 1963. Gosh, goodness. So he got taken in 1947 and he died in 1963. Yeah. So I mean, 16 years he had to live in Cairo against his will. Well, why couldn't he go on to France? Uh, he might doing? have been under guard. I don't know. Chained to a radiator. Wasn't I it? don't think he was chained to a radiator. I think maybe he thought that if he went to France, I mean, he couldn't have gone to France once he'd been rescued. Could no, he? I suppose not. It would be, that would look like a terrible, um, yeah. yeah. You know, if he sort of put out a public statement saying, I was looking forward to the, golf courses <laughs> of the river yeah fair enough um yeah. but anyway so that's the end of the rift war because obviously the spanish and the french won they cut they divided up morocco between them the spanish lost about forty-three thousand troops killed missing and wounded the french lost about eighteen thousand. The the berbers it's impossible to say maybe ten thousand maybe twenty thousand hard to tell Historians now look back at that war and they say, is it the last colonial war? Is it the first anti-colonial war? Is it an ancestor of the Spanish Civil War of World War II? Um, well, the one thing that is very clear is that where it, where it definitely prefigures the, span, the horrors of the Spanish Civil War is it's incredibly savage and violent. So it's full of massacres and tortures and beheadings. The, the Spanish army, I think, sort of motivated in part by their sense of humiliation, behave pretty badly um, throughout. And it, it sort of fosters among the so-called Africanist officers this in incredibly aggressive kind of reactionary um, sort of mindset where they're always conscious thinking that they're being betrayed by politicians and where they think only extreme violence. You know, that's sort of we must cut the heads off all the moors. That sort of attitude becomes very, very widespread among the officers. Exterminate all the brutes. Exactly that. Exactly that. So yeah. if you look at the people, Tom, who were the key figures in planning the rebellion in 1936 that launched the Spanish Civil War, the, the overall head of the whole thing, Emilio Mola, he had been wounded in the Rift War himself. The guy who I told you planned the amphibious operation at Al Husema, so that's Jose Sanjojo, he was called the Lion of the Riff, and he was made Marquis of the Riff. Uh, he's going to be one of the chief Spanish commanders in the Spanish Civil War. He dies in a plane crash. Mola, the other big cheese, he died in a car crash. And that meant that the number three man ended up becoming the face of the Nationalist Rebellion. And that's Franco, who was then commander of the Army of Africa. So in many ways, you can trace the whole of the Spanish Civil War back to what happened in Morocco in the 1910s and 1920s. This extraordinary chapter of history, blood-soaked chapter, which anticipated so many of the 
the horrors to come. Brilliant, Dominic. Very, a very cheery story. Well, we're all about, yeah, we're all we're about, all about cheer. We're all about cheer. Um, yeah, that's, that's quite a grim story. Um, and actually serves as a good introduction to the episodes on the Spanish Civil War that I'm sure we will be doing. We'll definitely do a series on the Spanish Civil War, Tom. If only because we've had so many kind remarks for our Iberian accents that we did in our (laughs) series about Portugal. My Spanish accent is better than my Portuguese. Is it? Oh, I cannot wait. That is a a positive. Let's do the whole thing in Spanish. I think think people would love that. But actually, you know what we should do... um, I think we I think uh we should do something about Marrakesh or Fez or some of these great sort of Moroccan cities at some point. Yeah, you know we should do we should do one of your walking tours of the of the souks well, we of go Marrakesh. To Tangiers. Go to Tangiers. What's what's so great about Tangiers? Because because it's such an interesting place, isn't it? Because it was a um a League of Nations protectorate. So it's kind of neutral city. And yeah. so it's it's got that slight West Berlin feel. It's got the it's it's a place where full of um you know, it's, we talked at the beginning, kind of great writers. Um, it's a kind of great center for gay culture. Uh, it's, it's a really, really interesting, okay, really interesting place. And it's, and it's very beautiful. And it appeared in, uh, the living daylights, Timothy Dalton's first. Well, James there you Boyd go, John, it's something for everyone. So I think that I'd, I'd love to do that. Yeah. And we will definitely be back. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.